Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Coming to you once again from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line in Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. Today is Monday, June the 13th, 2011. Actually, once again, it's Memorial Day when I'm recording this intro, but the interview that I'm going to do today was done actually a few days prior to that, and I am currently got my toes stuck in the sand taking my vacation for the year down in uh, in sunny Florida, uh, but I would not leave you guys without a whole series of shows, and today's show is going to be a little bit unique, a little bit different. Every once in a while, I get on the show and I talk to you about business, or I bring someone on to talk to you about business. In the past, I brought Gary Vayner. Chuck on today. Today I'm bringing on a guy with a little bit different take than Gary has, uh, even a little bit different take than I have, and I think that's a good thing. His name is MJ DeMarco. He is author of a book called The Millionaire Fast Lane, and his website is located at fastlaneentrepreneurs.com. He's a really switched on guy. He's also a guy you want to listen to if you want to learn how to make money, because he is a multimillionaire. He was the founder and CEO of limos.com. So he's not just a guy talking about doing it. He's a guy that's done it. His blog is fabulous. He and I have some very, very similar views about the educational system, and we have a little bit of some different views about following your passion. We're going to discuss all of that. We're going to give you some great advice on building a business of your own, because I believe that is, in fact, a survival topic. The way we survive in the modern world is a combination of things. We have our five primary survival needs, you know, food, shelter, uh, security, uh, energy, and water. And we have to have those five. But the primary way that we're able to acquire those is with money. Uh, I'll put it to you a little bit direct and a little bit blunt. You might want to cover a kid's ears if you got a kid listening today. But I had an old boss I didn't like. He was a jerk. He really was. But he had one statement he used to make that was absolutely the truth. He said, he used to tell me, Spirico, life is like a shit sandwich. The more bread you have, the less shit you have to eat. I think there's some truth to that. That's why I like to bring on people like MJ once in a while or talk to you about building a business. I know that's not for everybody. You're also going to hear some ways to think about money. So even if you want to stay as an employee for the rest of your life, I think there's some real advantages in today's show for you. Uh, before we bring MJ on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is... SilverAndGoldShop.com. That's the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. Uh, Mary Beth Maidmont. We're going to talk about wealth creation today. Once you have some wealth, I think it's important to preserve it. I'm not one of these people that says put all your money into silver and gold, uh, but I do believe 5% to 10% of your total net worth should be in silver and or gold because they have a historical track record to help preserve wealth. I actually see silver and gold as a form of wealth insurance. Uh, you're going to hear uh, MJ talking about shorting silver today. There was a time to do that not that long ago. I don't think we're there anymore. Okay, I think the silver price is stabilized at least as of Memorial Day. I, anything could have happened in the two weeks prior uh, to this interview coming out live for you. But I do believe that small amounts of silver and gold slowly added over time are a great way to preserve your wealth. And if you're looking for unique and cool stuff, check out silverandgoldshop.com. Next up today... 
Harvest Eating. That's the amazing chef Keith Snow, who, by the way, will be on the show tomorrow talking about cooking from your preps. We had a, a slew of stuff planned for Keith to talk about, and guess what? We only got halfway through it. No shock there. We'll have him on again uh, after tomorrow's appearance. But in the meantime, get over to HarvestEating.com. Get a copy of his book, Become a Member. He's got a great discount if you use the banner on our site for all TSP members. Uh, it's it's just a great 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 community he's got over there and it's important that we learn how to cook with all this cool stuff that we're growing and buying from CSAs and farmers markets and growing with aquaponics and all the stuff that we store in our, our storage as well. Uh, Keith's going to be on tomorrow to tell you about that but like I said check out harvesting.com today great website, great community great information uh, next up, you know make sure you're connecting with me on Facebook and Twitter, especially Facebook I'm telling you there's going to be some stuff I'm posting the Facebook while I'm on vacation, uh, when we're fishing and stuff like that and cool things that we find on the beach and other things. I like to stay in touch with the audience. This show is not just about building a better life. It's also about community, and part of being community is sharing with each other. Uh, the other day, uh, I was sitting on my deck. I had a beer for a Friday evening to kick off the weekend. I was sitting there with my wife. We were reading some books. We were watching the birds come on the bird feeders and things like that and sitting out there with the dogs. I posted a picture of the beer I was drinking. So what is everybody else doing? And we had about... 75 to 80 responses to that one little post. And uh, everybody was talking about what they were doing. I was giving some responses back. And I enjoy communicating with you. I care about this audience. I know that for some of you that are new here, you might think this is just a business like any other business. Actually, this is a business unlike any other business. It's the truth. I absolutely care my face off about everybody that listens to this show and shares it with other people. Uh, part of caring, give people a deal. Uh, member support brigade is a great deal. I'll leave it at that today, except there is a discount sale while I'm away. Code word is vacation. It's for new members only at this time. I can't do existing members too much logistics while I'm away. Uh, but the code again is vacation. You can use the form, uh, and pay by mail and use and write it on the form, or you can use it paying by PayPal. Remember, if you're in the military, email me. It might take me a while while I'm away to get back to you. But military guys, you get a discount. Uh, not quite. Actually, you would do better with the sale right now, but the military discount is forever and always. It applies to your recurring. Uh, but right now, this, this discount is uh, $35 for your first year. The military discount can be applied to any membership as well. Last but not least, remember we have a contest going on right now. Sponsored by Ready-Made Resources. One of you guys is going to win an AR-7 survival rifle. All you got to do is go to the website, pull up today's show or yesterday's show or tomorrow's show or any, any show during this two-week period, and uh, you'll see a link, and that link will take you to uh, a page on the uh, Ready-Made Resources website. And uh, you fill out that form, and then you hook up there with uh, Bob over at Ready-Made Resources on Facebook after you do that, and uh, maybe you'll win an AR-7 survival rifle. Remember, if 2,500 of you guys do this, I get one too. So look, I, I went to Bob, I got this deal, I got a rifle for you guys, I'd like one too. So share this with other people. I know that technically everybody you bring in reduces your chance to win, but hey, come on, man, tit for tat, so to speak. Uh, I'd love to get one of these. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate today to have MJ DeMarco with us today. MJ is the uh, founder of Limos.com. He's a uh, multimillionaire, which is nice to be. It's a good way to be prepared is to have lots of money. He's also the author of The Millionaire Fast Line, and he has a fabulous blog uh, that is located at FastLaneEntrepreneurs.com. Uh, MJ, hey, thanks for joining us today on the Survival Podcast. 
Hey, Jack. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll let you take care of that. <laughs> so, so the uh, the topic you and I are going to discuss today is the five financial lies we've been sold and the liars who sell them. And you know, um, you're a little different than my average guest, but uh, you fit in with the, the concept of preparedness through financial planning and things like that. But when I saw that topic, I'm like, I got to get this guy on the show. Uh, but we were talking before before we came on the air, and there were a few things that we you wanted me to kind of bring up for you. And one of them is. Why are most people broke in the first place, and why are they going to continue to be broke? Uh, well, we are being, uh, what I like to say is mindlessly indoctrinated to uh, follow a preordained path um, to wealth and financial freedom. And the preordained path to wealth, uh, I'm sure you've heard it before, and I'm sure your listeners have heard it before, it's the old... Go to school, uh, you know, get a college degree, graduate, uh, get a good job, uh, save, you know, 10% of your paycheck, invest that into the stock market for 40, 50 years, live mindlessly frugal for 40, 50 years, and then one day when you're, you know, I don't know, 65, 70 years old, you're going to have financial freedom, you're going to be rich, and you can retire. And... That plan, I believe, is really a huge gamble because it's predicated on what I call a hope trinity. And the hope trinity is pretty much hope you have a job. So it's the job market you're hoping for. And then you have to hope the stock market gives you 8% for 40 years. So you're hoping on the stock market. And then you have the housing market, which, you know, they used to say um, – you know, your house is your greatest investment and, you know, that use that for net worth and, you know, you'll be all right by the time you're older. Well, I think the recession has exposed every single one of these items as being a gamble. And this is why most people are broke. And it's not that, you know, they've done something wrong. It's just that this is, this is a plan that I, that I believe is just insufferably impotent because it's not controllable. I mean, your, your, your podcast is about survival. And it's hard to survive when you give up control and give it to other people or other things like the job market. You can't control the job market. You can't control the stock market and you can't control the housing market. So if your wealth is predicated on these three things, you're going to be headed for trouble and survival is going to be a crapshoot. Wow, I'll tell you what, um, you said to me when we were getting ready to start that the way you found out and, uh, about becoming a guest here is one of your, uh, one of your readers, uh, who's also one of my listeners suggested it to you and I can, I can see why now there's a, a lot of common thought here between the two of us. Mm-hmm. I, I've also, from, you know, talking to you and, and looking at your blog, I've heard you make the, ask the question, have you ever met a 22 year old millionaire who got wealthy clipping coupons? What, what point are you making there? Well, again, this is the song and dance we've been sold. Clip coupons, live frugal, cancel the movie channels, stop buying expensive coffee, um, you know, save that paycheck for 10%, you know, and then one day you'll be rich. Well, ask yourself, have you ever met somebody who follows that plan, got rich with that plan, and yet is 22 years old? Um, They don't exist. And the thing is, does that plan doesn't work in the short term. And for it to work, you need 40, 
50, 60 years. And our time is our most precious asset we have. Time is finite. Our mortality, you know, con, uh, makes, makes our time finite. And yet money, I believe, is infinite. I mean, 300, I think it's 30 trillion dollars are exchanged every day in the currency markets. So why are we giving up our lives to a financial plan that promises financial freedom when we're 65 or 70 years old? A lot of us aren't even going to make it to 65 or 70 years old. So that plan, it just doesn't work. I mean, if you want to be have financial freedom and you want it, see, I always wanted financial freedom when I was in my 30s, you know, or if I can get it in my 20s. I wanted it young because I wanted to enjoy it while I was young enough to enjoy it. And that plan that we've been sold simply can't deliver on that promise or on that expectation. Could you tell folks just a little bit about your background? I mentioned you as the founder of Limos.com, but how you got into that, what, what kind of success story that was. As we go forward, I want people to understand kind of the subject matter, matter expert you are, not some guy that's done a lot of research on stuff like this and has said, this is what I think. You've been very, very successful, and I want people to understand that because I think it, it gives your advice a great deal more credibility. Yeah, well, I was the CEO and founder of Limos.com from um, 97 to 2007. Um, this was a company I started with no money, um, 900 bucks, uh, which is pretty much considered no money, uh, no background in internet technology, uh, self-taught myself everything uh, to build and create the website, maintain it, uh, built the company up to a multi-million dollar valuation twice, sold it twice, sold it once um, in, I think it was 99, and then I sold it again in 2007. And during that time, when I held it for uh, 10 years, we pretty much dominated that little niche, and I was able to cash flow at anywhere from 100 to $200,000 per month, meaning that's, that's what I was profiting per month. And, you know, the, and the question I always like to ask people is, you know, if you're making $50,000 a month or $200,000 a month or whatever, if you're making that kind of income, how quickly will it take you to become a millionaire and actually realize financial freedom where, you know, you can pretty much do what you want and live how you want? And, um, you know, the answer is, oh, well, five months maybe instead of five decades. So that is my whole shtick is saying, you know, there's an alternative plan out there and it doesn't have to involve sacrificing your life for it. And what I'm saying is, you know, not not easy either. Not if anyone thinks I'm saying that this is easy, uh, the fast lane uh, theory, you know, they're wrong. But you know, it also isn't easy. Is giving up at six in the morning, fighting traffic five days a week, Monday through Friday for forty years, and then hoping and hoping and hoping. That's not easy either. So and, and hoping cancer doesn't take you out earlier. You don't exactly. get hit by a rock hauler truck on the way to work. And because I say that all the time on the show, I say to people, if you keep living your life with believing the dream that American Express or whoever else puts on your TV, and you see the two old people that are about seventy, but they're in great shape with their pants rolled up to their knees, holding their shoes, and walking down the beach. If you think that's going to be you, there's a one in one hundred million chance <laughs> that you are going to be that person because most of us don't look like that at seventy, and things don't work out because like you say we're leaving it up to somebody else to do and, and uh, you know on those odds you might as well play the lottery every day 
I, I know another place you and I are really in sync is our, our view of the education market, especially higher education, college, and, and the, the amount of money that young people are going into hog for for the rest of their life to get a degree that amounts to nothing more than a hunting license. And, and today mm-hmm. that, that hunting license is, doesn't even get you into like a really well-managed uh, game environment. It gets you into the desert to look for a deer. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the college system? And I mean, it, it's not, to me anyway, it's not all bad. But it's all yeah. bad for a lot of the people that are there is it's kind of how I feel. Yeah, well, that's a part of the indoctrination is the, the old belief. And the sad thing is the indoctrination is occurring from the media and our parents, of all people, who, you know, believe that you have to go to college so you can graduate and get a good job. And unfortunately, what is happening, and, you know, this for me, the recession has been the greatest thing that's happened to me because it's exposing what I've always believed. And... That is that these these things that we have held so tried and true are um, false or fictitious. And we have kids graduating from college with six figures in debt, and yet they can't find a job. Well, again, that's based on that hope trinity. Well, if the job isn't there, it doesn't work. Now, everything that I've ever learned uh, when it came to building my company and doing what I'm doing today... I learned after graduation. I self-taught myself everything. Uh, you know, if you can, um, if you can Google it, you can become an expert in anything. Infinite knowledge is at our disposal and it's free. I mean, assuming you have an internet connection or you have a library or you can go to Barnes and Noble and sit in there and read. That's how I educated myself. Now I went to college, graduated with two business degrees. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything because, you know, there's social aspects, there's networking. But the bill of goods is to think that, oh, I'm going to go to college. And because I'm going to college, I'm going to be successful. What it does is it, it, it almost puts people into a trap where they have so much debt that their freedom is eroded or their options are eroded. And if your options are eroded... You know, that sucks you into that job where you have to work. You can't, you know, you can't get out. It's almost like a trap. So it's just something people should be mindful of. Correct. I, I, I'm, this might sound a little bit conspiratorial to you because you don't know me or nothing yet, but I'm not one of these big uh, tin hat conspiracy nuts or anything. But I honestly believe that, that big business and big government has made that the plan. If I can get you to go to school and believe and be indoctrinated in everything that I think, and at the same time I can put you in a debt that you're going to have to work the rest of your life to pay to pay off, and if I can give you only one hope at the end of it, which is keep doing the system, keep following the system, mm-hmm. and I can trap you there where you can't afford to take a risk and get out because student loans are the one debt you can't get rid of. It will follow you to the grave. They'll, they'll hand it down to your children. If I can put you into that system, I can get conformity and I can have a well-ordered and run society in quote marks in the eyes of a bureaucrat. Uh, and in the eyes of a, of a business and financial institutions, the, the, sta- the stability that creates and the willingness to keep putting all of your money into mutual funds, which is just a way of propping the market up, uh-huh. That creates the perfect society to, to dominate, to govern, and to extract wealth from. Yeah, and you know, uh, not to get political or anything, but oh, uh, go ahead, you're allowed <laughs> to do that here. Well, I don't. Not when you're trying to sell books, you can't be. It's <laughs> a political book, but um, you know, the government has almost demonized entrepreneurship, and it's it's kind of a shame. But without entrepreneurship, without business. Uh, who creates the jobs? Um, 
you know, it's, it's a, it's just not a, a very good, uh, you know, thing to be operating in. I posted this on my, uh, Facebook forum and it's kind of analogous to what we're talking about. It says taking loans for a college degree is analogous to buying a business that loses money for five to 10 years, competes in an overcrowded market, <laughs> has no scale, requires the owner to work at least 40 hours a week, gets taxed at twice the rate of normal business. <laughs> Additionally, you cannot sell the business or escape by filing bankruptcy. Do we have a deal? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's very accurate. What I said is it also fits the uh, definition of a bubble pretty well. A bubble is a point at which people are paying more for something than they ever have before, while the underlying value of the commodity has been eroded. And I think that If you got a degree in 1990 and you have a degree coming out today in the same field or a similar field, no one could argue that the degree wasn't worth more in the job market in 1990 than it is today. Yet we're paying twice the amount that we paid for a degree back then. And then, like you said, we're financing it with interest and also we're actually paying three times what we think we are. And so to me, it's kind of, it's in a, it does, what makes it sustainable is government money and, and this, this brainwashing of the parents always sending Johnny off to school. But otherwise, I see it as a typical financial bubble. And there's the old saying, you know, if everyone is special, is anyone special? Correct. So if everyone has a degree or 80% of the country has a degree, is it special anymore? I mean, yeah, if you're a doc, if you're, you know, you want to be a doctor or an engineer, you're going to need a degree. But, you know, liberal arts degrees and, you know, these other, you know, I, I have some uh, acquaintances that are getting MBAs and I just, I, it makes no, absolute no sense to me. And I don't, you know, I don't say anything because it's just not my place. Sure. But it, it, it makes no sense to me and they're already in debt and it's like their job, they're making, you know, 40 grand a year and it's like, well, what's the MBA going to do except strap you on with more debt, maybe get you a raise. You know, it's a 50 grand a year. 50 grand a year. So you're going to pay a hundred thousand or a hundred fifty thousand dollars to, to go to an MBA to get a ten thousand dollar year raise. I'll, I'll tell you what, just give me the hundred fifty thousand and every year, right? I'll, I'll pay you ten thousand dollars in consulting fees. I mean, what, I mean, again, would you take that deal? So we're beating the education thing up a little bit here, but, uh, I, I kind of want to move on and talk more about some other things that you've, you've been bringing up. I watched a, a video blog you put out, I think today, that was really awesome. And you were talking about how somebody's like going, okay, well, what do I do? What business do I establish, uh, to go out and build wealth with? But you can actually use haters to tell you what you need to do for your next business opportunity. So you want to chat about that a bit? Sure. Um, first, I believe that your business is your greatest investment. That's, you know, I get asked, oh, where, you know, where, what, what do you think is the best investment nowadays? I say it's, it's your business and it's always been your business. So to answer your question, you know, if someone's on the fence right now, they're like, yeah, I want to start a business. I want to start a company, but where do I, you know, which one, what do I do? And I think the first step in that process always needs to be to attack the marketplace based on a fundamental need, problem, pain point, inconvenience, and attack it from that sport that from that standpoint. Now, today there's a lot of entrepreneur books out there that are preaching the exact opposite. And I, I think they say the exact opposite because it's the type of thing that sells a lot of books. And that is, you know, go do what you love, go follow your passion, do this kind of stuff. And that all sounds very good, but unless you're very good at it, you're exceptional at it, and the market needs it, 
bottom line, the market doesn't care. I mean, the market doesn't care that I love to write. It just wants to know, you know, is what I'm writing going to help you? The marketplace is a very selfish place. It just wants to know what's in it for me. So back to the hater thing is anytime you hear someone bitching and complaining and moaning uh, about something, you know, I hate this or I hate that. That's an opportunity. Um, the example I give was the Netflix founder who started Netflix because he was, quote, sick and tired of paying late fees from Blockbuster. See, when you have that language there, sick and tired, that's an opportunity. And in our language, anytime you find this, that is a potential opportunity. And the other word I use is the I hate. If you go to Twitter and you type in I hate, you'll see all kinds of I hates come in there, come up there. And within that, you will find an opportunity. And the example I used in that video was I saw somebody that said, I hate packing. Obviously, she was packing up her house, moving, and she hated packing. So that was a potential opportunity in that you can create a company that does only packing. They don't move you. They just pack you. And, uh, you know, that's what they specialize in. They can franchise it. So that's how opportunities are birthed. They're birthed on marketplace hates or inconveniences or a company isn't doing something very well and you go out and attack that. Well, I'm going to try to build a bridge for you between you and these, uh, the, 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 uh, you know, do what you love crowd. Because I'm kind of the do what you love crowd. But what, what I've always seen out of that, and otherwise your answer is just dead spot on, folks. And I want you guys to take that in and think about how you can use that for yourselves. But, a person like you and a person like me, especially before I started doing this and kind of walked away from the, the typical business world, we actually love to build businesses. So when we go out and find a need like you're talking about and somebody looks at that and goes, well, he's actually passionate about you know scuba diving, but he's got a business about limos, but you're actually passionate about building business. And I think that if you're going to take that approach, you have to really want to do it and you have to really love the the process, the architecture mm -hmm. of creating a business, or you're going to be better. I think if you're not that person, you're better off with a small business that can make you know $50,000 a year and keeping a job on top of that. Because if you don't love it, you're, you're not going to, like you said, yeah. it's not easy. It isn't easy. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has the DNA, I think, to be an entrepreneur. It takes sacrifice and risk. But like you said, it takes sacrifice and a lot more risk, but it's all on how we're wired in the head. But it sure. takes a lot of sacrifice and risk to stay as a employee for 40 years. I, I can't do it. It was never, never my, yeah. I could never be an employee. I, I was terrible at it. My, my, my son's kept his first job longer than any job I've ever kept in my life. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's my, here's my take on passion. Um, I am passionate about entrepreneurship. I am passionate about controlling my destiny. I am passionate about freedom. I am passionate about not having to worry about the stock market or, you know, a job. That's what I'm passionate about. So that is very generalized. So I can, that puts me into a mode where I can, you know, start any business I want because it's not based on, you know, what I love or what I, that's passion to me. And I've, what I've found is that when entrepreneurs attack the market based on passion, It's very generalized. And once they start doing something and providing the marketplace value, they're selling products or they're, you know, they're doing something and they're seeing that feedback loop come back to them and they're doing it on their own and they have no one to answer to, no boss. That is a very passionate action. And it, it gets the person up in the morning. It, it, that's what fuels their motivational fire versus do what you love is specific. You know, I love gotcha. car. 
I, I loved car audio when I was young in my 20s. You know, subwoofers and amplifiers. So you know what I did? I did what I love. I went and started a company doing that. Unfortunately, the marketplace didn't need what I had. I was just doing it because that's what I, that's what I loved. But the market had no need for it. So eventually, after about 18 months, it failed. And it just wasn't selling enough because the market didn't need it. So that's um, a great example of passion versus do what you love. You know, do you think that social media today makes it easier to be a passionate entrepreneur? Because no matter what you're doing, whether it's sewage removal or, you know, uh, being an author or anything we can think of where you can find a niche and fill it, no matter what that is, you can have direct feedback from your customers, that customer interaction becomes scalable today. Absolutely. I mean, and social media is still uh, unfolding right now, so there's opportunity. Anytime you have technological change anywhere, that's where a lot of money is made. Change makes millionaires. And social media is a great part of that feedback loop. And to give you an example is I have lost track on how many people have emailed me, tweeted me, and said, you know what, I loved your book. Ignore the cover. <laughs> so they're telling me, you know, you have an awesome book. We don't like your cover. Got you. So that to me is a feedback loop. That's the marketplace. And that's how I believe great businesses are created is they look at that feedback loop and see what the market is saying and then adjust accordingly. So my next print run I have coming up, I am intent on changing the cover of my book because that's what the feedback loop is telling me. Um, and you didn't get one person in the feedback loop or two or three people. You got a bunch. So you know you yeah, can trust that information. Yeah, I mean, even if you look in the reviews on Amazon, you'll, you'll see people say, oh, well, ignore the cover. This is an awesome book. <laughs> wow. wow. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I think I have a problem here. <laughs> <laughs> see, and I, what I think makes you special as an entrepreneur is you can accept that. I think that a lot of people, especially people that are still in the system, so to speak, uh, that are marketing people, that are uh, you know chief marketing officers, directors of marketing level people, they fear social media because instead of just having an ROI-based campaign where the metrics say it was worth the money, they're actually going to hear what people really think, including the person that says, I bought your stuff, but I didn't do it because of anything you did. I bought it because I'm a loyal long-term customer and I like the product, but your marketing sucks. And I don't think those people are ready to hear that yet. And I think the people that are ready to hear that are embracing these platforms, and and they're the guys that are making things, and I should say guys and girls that are making things happen in tomorrow's world that aren't holding on to the legacy environment. Yeah, and that's and that's where you expose the opportunity again. You have these companies that don't embrace social media. You have the Twitter, the Twitter feed is blowing up with you know complaints about their operations or what they're doing. That exposes the opportunity because they just don't want to accept. Uh, you know, that feedback that they don't want to accept that into their plan. You know, and a, another good example is you're starting to see a lot of this with Facebook, you know, with privacy and, you know, every week they change something and people are starting to be like, oh, what? see that, that exposes another opportunity for another company to come in and say, you know what, we're going to address those problems and attack it. And I think it also opens the opportunity for companies that will come in and say, well, the problems are real. We can't make them all go away, but we care and we're aware and we're paying attention to you. Example, I use a little program. You probably use this thing, too, with all the stuff you do online called RoboForm. It's a password manager. 
And then I updated my Firefox browser to the 4.whatever, and the old one didn't work anymore. So I jump on their Facebook page and say, hey, what's the deal? Guy comes back from the company, uh, not just a fellow fan, and says, uh, sorry about this, um, but we had to do so much upgrading to make this work that there's a new version of this password manager for four dot whatever and above, and you do have to pay for the upgrade. I wasn't happy about paying for the upgrade, but I got a straight answer. I got an honest mm -hmm. answer, and I got an admission that basically said, as entrepreneurs, we had to do this, and I was happy to pay for the upgrade after that. And I actually yeah. responded to the guy in his fan page on Facebook. I said, I want to thank you for giving a shit about your customers. And I think that we're in a, in a society today where if you can teach, you know, because people say listen to your customers, and I feel like, That's so, like, that's market speak now. Do you actually care? Do you actually give a shit about that one customer who had a bad experience? Now, if they're an unreasonable person, I think we both agree there's a customer that you eventually go, man, sorry, go off. You, you're, this is not what you're looking for. But the person that's trying to do business with you, that wants to do business with you, that has a bad experience, if you can satisfy that person, you can pretty much satisfy everybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I think if your objective is to grow a company, you know, exponentially versus linearly, you have to have great customer service. I believe that was one of the uh, success points in my story is that I listened to all the customers. I had times when customers would email me and say, you know, we would love this feature. It works here. This would work like this and da, da, da. And within hours, we would have that feature implemented. And That's listening. And then it started becoming funny because I'd have customers emailing us just to test our response rate because usually we would respond within 30 minutes. So they would just email us and say, hey, we're emailing you to see how quickly you'll respond. And <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what made you successful. And you apparently adopted that and embraced that concept very early on. You started your company in 1997. Uh, the Internet was truly an infant at that point. Uh, uh -huh. Vaynerchuk basically says that the infant's a teenager right now. hasn't even grown up and had sex yet. There's so much opportunity out there oh, yeah. ahead of us. But you were dealing with the Internet when it was on a bottle. You know, it was on the bottle drinking the the uh, the, 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 the uh, formula, mm -hmm. uh, and it, you brought that that in early. But to me, that's a natural entrepreneur thing to do. So, what would you tell the person that says, "All right, I've got my concept, I know what I want to do," but they're like you, they they've never built a business before, they're overwhelmed by it, they're not sure what to do, uh, they they're second guessing whether or not they're making the right moves. What do they do? How do they how do they get that off the ground and turn it into something? Well, I, I believe the strongest um, success factors with a company always lie in the product. Because if the product is works, people will tell other people. And if your product is weak and it's reliant solely on marketing, then you're at a disadvantage. This is why I feel it's so important to attack a marketplace based on what it needs versus what you want. Because if the, market, if the product sells, other people start talking and it becomes viral. People start posting it on Facebook. People start tweeting it. And, you know, I, a great example is my own book. I, I felt the market needed what I had to write, so I started, so that's why I wrote it. Also, it was something, it was my dream. But I, I wouldn't probably have written it if I didn't think the market needed it. But it needed it. And I can tell you that most of my sales are through word of mouth 
and not to any spectacular marketing I've been doing. And that's because it's been product-centric, meaning your company, your business needs to be product-centric and be attacking that market based on that need because then the, the marketing aspect becomes so much easier. This is why the foundation is so important versus, you know, I'm starting this company because I like doing it and I know how to do it or I know how to do it. A great example is I had a, a person in my forum complaining that his carpet cleaning business wasn't doing very well. The first question I asked him was, well, why are you doing carpet cleaning? He said, <laughs> because, because I needed a job. Do you see why he's struggling? Sure. I mean, there's, sure. No, brand, there's no brand there. Um, there's no market need. So, of course, you're going to be, you know, struggling week to week to pay the bills because you attack the market. You got into the market based on the wrong reason. I would actually say that person could probably be very successful building a carpet cleaning business if he had an answer to your question. And there probably is an answer to your question, but he didn't know what the hell it was. There's there's probably a need in that market, faster service, better results, whatever it is. But since mm -hmm. he didn't have any idea what that is, it was just – and I think that's what a lot of people get into a business and they go the franchise route do is they just say, well, you know, there's there's I see lots of trucks driving around doing this, so somebody's paying for it. And they'll give me a shiny truck if I get a loan, and then I'll go out and be a carpet cleaner. And like you said, the guy's answer was totally, to me, that on, it's on its face wrong. I needed mm -hmm. a job. Well, then you shouldn't have opened a business. You should have got a job. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't understand the, the, the concept like that. It, it, it's the same thing that I get when I, when I talk to a person when they, they refer to a mortgage payment as their rent payment. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm like, no, this is your home. You should be working to pay this thing off as quickly as possible. And, mm -hmm. and they, they still use this old, because they always rent a department. Now they bought a house. They still see it as rent. And it's kind of a very similar overlap there. I have an interesting thought for you, though. I want to get your thoughts on this. I have a theory that there are really only two types of products you can sell, products that are wanted and products that are needed. And I think we agree on this, this need aspect, but when I use it in that clear delineation, when I say a need, when I say a need, I mean food, water, You know, stuff that if you don't yeah. have it, you're not going to survive. And I'd even put like cellular communications in that today. It's that's cable TV. That's kind of a need. And my view is you've always wanted to sell the product that's wanted versus needed. In other words, the market can need your book, as you're saying. But if I buy your book, it's really because I want it. I'm not going to die if I don't have yeah. your book, right? Really I might fail in business, but I have to want it. If, if, I, if I want your old business, limos.com, if I wanted a limo, well, I was going to get a limo because I wanted a limo. I'm not going to die without a limo. Mm -hmm. And my belief is the reason we want to focus on those wants is that's where people will pay a premium for things. Mm-hmm. And if, if you take any human being and say, okay, you've just lost your job, now you have to start cutting expenses, as crazy as it sounds, they never start, start with their luxuries. The first thing they do is, how can I pay a penny less for a gallon for gas? And that's going to save them, oh, 60 cents a week. Uh, you know, how can I go get my phone company to cut my bill or what have you? And, and all in all, they can save 50 bucks, but they'll start there. Yeah. And in the middle of recessions, people go on ski trips. Oh, I, I, yeah, I mean... And take a limo to get there, right? <laughs> and it, 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 it seems ridiculous. Like You feel like you'd want to be in the need, the, the pure need market. But to me, that's all dominated by the multi-billion dollar players. 
And, and entrepreneurs like us, we can move faster. That's why you could do things like somebody would say, well, I want this additional search feature at limos.com or whatever. And you guys get a couple programmers together, and bam, you can knock it out. And those Goliaths can't do that. They have so much crap in their company, they have to have 62 meetings to decide whether or not they even want to do that. And what will it cannibalize, and what will the ramifications be? And you go, my market wants it, I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah, that was one of my... Um advantages was to speed the market. I mean, it's not like that now. The company's grown substantially since I sold it. Um, but that was one of my, you know, and that's always a benefit for uh, a small, well, well-oiled company is they can respond to this feedback uh, tremendously fast, whereas the big corporation or the medium-sized corporation, you know, has to put it through process, you know, send it out to the guy pop who sends it up to the top guy and then comes back. And, you know, by the time anything gets done, you know, two months have gone by. Meanwhile, it's already, you know, the speed to market is, is there. But in response to your original uh, products that are needed and wanted, I totally agree with that. I never actually never thought of it like that. But you're describing is um, I think it, to to really achieve financial freedom is we have to approach the market based on being a producer Versus a consumer. And I like to say, you know, producers are the ones who are rich. Producers are the ones who have financial freedom. The consumers are the broke ones. The consumers are time bankrupt. The consumers are getting on the freeway at 6 in the morning and getting home at 6 at night. Because they have to upkeep what they, you know, what they demand and the lifestyle and all that other stuff, which I consider is like an indentured servitude for life. You're using all my words, man. This is just awesome. Uh, I want to talk to you a bit about your book, but I've got to, I've got to talk on this producer-consumer thing with you for just a second, if we can. Um, one of the things I started doing very, very early on with the Survival Podcast is teaching people that kind of the, you know, the whole rich dad thing. Your house is not really an asset unless you actually own it. It's actually a liability. And the mm-hmm. problem is that most Americans, we live in homes, and the home's a consumer. The home consumes 27 to 32 percent of our income. The home uh-huh. cons- it, it, just in mortgage and interest. Then the, cons- the home consumes uh, at, at the energy level because we need energy. Uh, the home consumes and consumes every time something breaks, we have to fix it. Where my belief is that we get the debt, we eliminate the debt, we get the home paid off, and we convert the home into a producer. We put uh, instead of planting Bartlett pear tree or, or uh, Bradford pear trees that don't grow pears, maybe we plant a tree that actually produces food. Um, things like that and I, mm-hmm. I just think that there's a lot of synergy there and it is that consumption is is great if you're the, the seller right but yeah. when consumption sucks when you're the one paying the bills well here's the other thing is is if you succeed as a producer you can consume anything you want true and, and that's and that was one <laughs> of the that's one of the elements I talk about in my book um, you know I I I don't know if I want to admit this or not, but I, I live in a pretty big house. I drive a very expensive car. I live very nicely. I have movie channels. I drink my coffee, you know, my Starbucks. I consume, believe me, I consume. But it's not attacking my freedom to do it. Meaning if this big house I live in was starting to attack my freedom, meaning I had to go work for it, or meaning it was, it was uh, forcing me to be uncomfortable with certain things, I'd sell it immediately. If owning a, an expensive car was the same, I'd sell it immediately. See, we have to realize the point of more. I don't know if there's a um, 
what's that movie? Uh, 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 Wall Street. Oh yes, yes. Money never sleeps, and there's a billionaire tycoon on there, and he just he's you know he's a billionaire tycoon, and the guy says, you know, when is enough enough? What is your number? And he goes more. <laughs> and I think more is a prescription to be unhappy. See, I figured yep. out more. I don't need a five thousand square foot house. I don't need three Lamborghinis. See, I know what my more is, and I think all of us have to find what that is. Where's our level of contentment? And, exactly. And you know what? This is why I love talking to fellow entrepreneurs. I think we're, we're figuring something out together here with this consumption producer thing. The, the point where being a consumer becomes a, a detriment is when you have a deficit. The reason yes. you can consume is because you produce more than you consume. And I think most Americans are living their lives in a completely reverse dynamic. They are actually consuming more than they're producing. And I'm not talking about this in some environmental, greeny, whack job way. I'm talking mm-hmm. about pure nuts and bolts mathematics. If you're living on credit cards, um, that means by its very nature that you're producing X and you're spending Y and Y is bigger and that deficit, just like the federal government's deficit, is going to keep getting bigger. But unlike the federal government, you can't just print more, borrow more, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and tax more. You actually have to pay the bill at some point. And I think that imbalance is a big point, uh, there with the producer-consumer kind of ratio. Uh, that's, that, that's kind of cool. I don't think I would ever come up with that without having you on the show. And it's a vicious circle. I mean, you, you get a raise, you get a pay raise, and immediately that money is accounted for into a uh, a bigger house, a bigger car. Uh, it, it, there's never any savings rate. Uh, this is what I call a sidewalk. It's when you're pretty much living one thing from broke, one paycheck from broke, one business deal from broke, one gig from broke, one contract from broke. That's a paycheck to paycheck mentality. And the thing about the sidewalk is it doesn't care about what you make. There are very rich sidewalkers. You ever hear of an NBA, con- uh, NBA player who retires and then three years later they're filing bankruptcy? I know one personally. I know an NFL uh, wide receiver who was a very, I won't throw his name out there and put him under the bus, but uh, who played for the uh, Minnesota Vikings. Who, who's absolutely broke today because of stupid business deals. Yeah, and that's, that is the sidewalk. That's when you are spending more than you are making. And the analogy I love using is some sidewalkers are really fearful of their $900 mortgage payment, but there's some other sidewalkers who are fearful of their $9,000 mortgage payment. See, the, the scenery is different, but the problems are the same. Absolutely. So hey, let's let's uh, get you some exposure on your book here. Let's talk a little bit about your book. Your book is called um, The Millionaire Fast Lane. Tell us a little bit about that book. What are people going to learn in it? Well, the first half of the book is a little bit about what we've been talking about here about why the preordained plan to wealth doesn't work. And if your objective is financial freedom, uh, you know, young, you know, within ten years of Reach, uh, starting that road trip, if you're 20 or 30, you know, reaching it young is, it explains why that, why the plan doesn't work, the preordained plan, you know, the go to school, get a job, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the first half. The second half explains the alternative, which is what I call the fast lane. The fast lane is a psychological, mathematical, it's a business strategy, uh, predicated on entrepreneurship that swaps out that hope and time problem with the preordained plan, with control and leverage. And basically, fast lane businesses 
exponentiate wealth quickly. Meaning, again, if you're if you're making five figures, six figures a month, your income explodes, your net worth explodes, and wham, you know, within a few months or a few years, you become a millionaire. That is the fast lane. It's about control and leverage and how to do that and what businesses subscribe to that type of environment. I mean, every week I see another fast lane story. You know, someone who uh, produces an iPhone app and sells 300,000 of them. The young girl who, who sells ebooks on Kindle and sells 200,000 of them a month and is a millionaire two years later. These are the kind of fast lane stories that the book talks about. Now, my story uh, is another one. I was 26 years old, mopping floors, delivering pizza, and I was a millionaire by 31, multimillionaire by 33, and retired a few years later, semi-retired a few years later. Fast lanes create these what I call get-rich-quick type events, not to confuse it with get-rich-easy because it's not easy at all, but these events exist, this get-rich-quick thing. We've been told, we've been trained to think, Ah, that that's a that's a scam. That that doesn't exist, but it does exist because it happens all the time, and we see these stories. And I think that people need to get their head around what quick means. I think there are a lot of scam artists out there. I know you're not mm -hmm. one. That's why you're on the show. When I researched, you saw who you were. I was like, yeah, I'll bring this guy on. But get rich quick is not in 24 hours. Now, if you're already rich, rich, you can make a lot of money in 24 hours doing yeah. certain things. But if you're dirt poor, you're not going to be rich two days later. It's not going to yeah. happen. But five years from you know mopping floors to being well off is very very quick compared to 40 years to live yeah. a little bit better than the poverty level and not have to work anymore because, well, you can't. Yeah, and that quick is a relative term. When I mean quick, I mean two, five, ten years, as opposed to the standard, you know, 40, 50 years, and that's even a risky gamble. What, do you, what is your thought about protecting, preserving, and growing wealth once it's achieved? Uh, even for the person that maybe has a nest egg right now, four or five hundred thousand, maybe they were smart enough and they, they you know, because when I started this show, it was uh, June of 2008, and one of the first messages I had was, get your money out of the stock market now. I don't care what your financial advisor mm -hmm. says. If he objects to you, and I said this literally, punch him in the face. And tell him to make the trade. You got to get out of the market. Uh, so the person did that, and, they, 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 and then maybe they've gone back in. They played some of this upside now, and now they're saying, "What do I do to create income off of my wealth?" Uh, well, that dynamic is always changing. You know, my answer a couple years ago would be different. My answer a year ago would be different. Answer is always changing. And the first thing you have to understand is that fast planners think globally; they don't think locally. And I've been talking about the Australian dollar now for three years. And I started talking about it. It was uh, like 88, about 88, 89. Now it's 105. So I believe that is a good investment, although right now I'm not in it because I believe it was over overbought. But holding Australian dollars yields 3%, and then you get the appreciation uh, from the dollar decline, which is, you know, I had a little rally here in the last couple of weeks, but... I still think the long-term economics of it is not sustainable. Correct, and if you did the same thing, and we, we were doing this back in 2008, you go in and back 2008, you could buy Australian bonds, and they were paying 7% at the time. And, and you could lock that rate for two, three years. And that's another, yeah, glad you brought that up. And that's the next thing I was getting to is uh, I have a lot of my money in Australian government bonds, which are yielding about 5.5%. Um, you know, 
this is what I say, we think globally and not locally. You know, I don't think I could live putting my money just sitting in a bank account or, you know, doing nothing. But um, the other uh, space is commodities, despite the uh, recent pullback. Uh, I think commodities are a great long-term bet because of scarce resources, the demand coming from China. And, again, the dollar, which is going to be devalued if we keep printing it. So, and and when I say these things, I don't mean you just, you know, invest and forget about it. A great example is I I bought put options on silver a couple weeks ago because it was way overbought. I ended up making like 140% of my money in three days. So when I say these are good investments, I don't mean you just get into them and forget about them. You got to, you know, get in and look at the market, see what it's doing, seeing what it's telling you. So, and the other example is I'm not in the Australian dollar right now because I believe it was overbought. So where you would have made that recommendation 24 months ago, you wouldn't recommend that, make that recommendation today. And I think that, I think that's another part of the trap that it's, it's not just, it's not just the uh, the 401k uh, culture that we live in, right? There's like seven funds, and you pick a mid-cap, a small-cap, and whatever, mm-hmm. and then you call yourself diversified when you're in 100% of the same exact type of asset class, and it's in the 401k, and then dollar cost average. It's not just that in and of itself. It's that the person has been trained by their HR department, by their rep from the financial company, that you just don't worry about it. And you don't, and every financial advisor you talk to, I don't time markets. Well, then get out of my face. I mean, why the hell do I need you if you can't predict the biggest mm-hmm. market crash in the face of the history when there were 27 guys on Fox News telling you every day, here it comes, here it comes. And all of you sat there and took it in the face. And the culture of just let it ride, I think, has really done a lot to, to, you know, destroy wealth. And then they lie to people and say, well, this fund is managed by these great people that do all of this stuff. And the reality is if they're a mid-cap stock fund and they're supposed to be invested in mid-cap stocks, no matter what, the only thing they can possibly do to um, improve uh, performance is buy other mid-cap stocks. They have to take it in the face when the crash comes. And that culture of just let it ride is really mm-hmm. caused a lot of harm to the American populace. To the global populace, really, in the industrialized world. Yeah, and, and here's an interesting um, take: is my wealth has nothing to do with the stock market. I, I I didn't use the stock market or 401k. I don't even have a 401k. I don't have an IRA. I I was able to retire and live well, relatively young, because that was not those were not my tools for building wealth. I use those tools for income, not wealth. You know, I, the other day I had a broke, my broker called me. He said, you know, you got some money here. Can we invest it for you? I said, no. <laughs> I said, that's why it's there because I didn't invest it with you guys. You know, my business, <laughs> my, my business created those assets. That's and now awesome. I'm, now I invest that stuff for income. I mean, another, another thing is we're not trained to look at other things. I mean, I write a lot of put options. I buy options. I sell options. I do spreads. That's another income oriented play that, you know, for the most part, most people don't even know about. But that is not responsible for my wealth. My business was scaled, which was leverageable, which was controllable. That created wealth. Now I'm using those types of instruments for income. That's what pays my mortgage. And it's pretty much 99.9% passive outside of you know making a periodic adjustments. 
Very cool. And you talk about a lot of this stuff on your blog. You want to remind people again where your website is? Uh, the blog is FastLaneEntrepreneurs.com, and the business discussion is the FastLaneForum.com, and the book uh, is TheMillionaireFastLane.com. Well, hey, uh, man, we've had a we've had a great interview with you here. I haven't even checked out your forum yet. I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to do that and poke around in there because I love the stuff that you're uh, that you're talking about here. You got any final thoughts for folks today about uh, wealth creation or just uh, just getting off the pot and getting it done? Uh, yeah, not, just do it. Nothing nothing happens sitting on your butt watching you know American Idol. Get on, get off your butt, create a business, start creating that feedback loop. And people will tell you where you need to go. People will tell you your product sucks. People will tell you they love your product. Get that feedback loop working. Start moving stuff, and things will start happening. And then, again, that puts you in control. And once you're in control, I consider that you're on the fast lane. Great. And I got one more question for you. This one might be a little tough. It might be uh, hit it out of the park softball. I don't know. You got a kid today, 19 years old, staring down the barrel of going to college, not sure whether he wants to do it or not, not sure what he wants to study or not. Says, well, there's really no hope for me here in my little hometown. I don't really have much money. I can get a job making just over minimum wage. Should I go to school or not? What should I do? What would you tell that young man? It depends if the education is paid for. Is it uh, government paying for? Say it's it? not paid for. It's, they're going to have to take loans. They're going to have to work through school, one or the oh, other. Oh God, it's such a hard. <sighs> it's a hard question to answer because I don't know the person. Sure. It, it depends on the individual. Uh, college has its benefits, um, but if he's an entrepreneurial type, and you know, I went to college knowing that I'm going to build a business, so I, I got out of it what I needed to get out of it. Um, but I, I, oh, it's a tough question. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> I'd rather you tell me that than just make something up. <laughs> but, you know, I think it is a tough question. I think it's one that people have to a answer for themselves, but I always tell people, if you don't really know what you want to get out of it, don't pay $150,000 for it. I, and I agree with that. And that's why it's a very individualistic question. If the guy wants to be an engineer or he suspects he wants to be a doctor, you know, then it might be worth it. But if he's on the fence and, you know, he's got an entrepreneurial inkling to him, you know, maybe then it's not, not worth it, especially now, nowadays. So that's why it's a very highly dependent on the individual. Very, very cool. Well, hey, MJ, thank you for being on the show, folks. Again, the uh, website is FastLaneEntrepreneurs.com. The book is The Millionaire Fastlane, and the uh, forum is the FastLaneForum.com. I will have links to all of those resources in today's show notes. And uh, MJ also has, of course, Facebook, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube uh, that you can connect with him on his website. I'm sure he'd love to connect with the audience on those mediums, wouldn't you, MJ? Absolutely. So uh, connect with MJ, check out his book, and uh, check out his blog. I know I'm going to become a regular reader of it. And I really appreciate you being on the show with us today, man. Hey, Jack, I appreciate you having me, man. really do. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spierko, along with MJ DeMarco today, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules.
Revolution is you.